0: I think we underestimate how much we've lost financial privacy over the last two decades. This is not an argument for CBDCs at all. I think it's an appeal that I'm making to the Liberty Movement to um, look more closely at the financial
1: privacy that we've already lost. Welcome to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Lash, and I'm the head of public policy here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalising public policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, would a central bank digital currency threaten freedom? To discuss this topic of central bank digital currencies and the latest from the world of blockchain, I'm very delighted to be joined by Dr. Chris Berg. Chris is the co-founder of the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub. He's also the former policy director himself of a Melbourne-based free marketing tank called the Institute of Public Affairs, where Chris and I used to be colleagues. He's also the author of 11 books, including uh, a range of topics on overregulation uh, and economic freedom. Chris, let's start with the basics here, I think. Um, what is a, a digital currency when we, when we talk about this and how does it really d- differ from the usual currency that people have in their bank accounts or uh, carry in their wallets?
0: Yeah, th- thanks for having me, Matthew. Um, so look, y- you're right. I mean, we have digital currencies already. Um, you could even argue that um, we have central bank digital currencies because uh, the the private banks, they settle on the, uh, on the central bank's digital ledger. A central bank digital currency is, um, in that sense, a central CBDC is an evolution from where we are. Um, On the other hand though, a central bank digital currency gives central banks a degree of um, a, a new architecture on which to do wholesale settlement and potentially even retail payment systems that could connect possibly to the rest of the crypto economy or certainly could connect to other cryptocurrencies or private blockchains and that's why some central banks are interested in it but there are there are some interesting challenges with
1: that. Um, and and what, what do you think I suppose that the value add is of, of a central bank digital currency and um, this is something that's been talked about quite a lot that the Bank of England seems to be doing studies on it um, something that there seems to be some interest uh, or at least some potential benefit to it so thinking thinking through maybe we, we split out the wholesale and the retail here so with the wholesale level um, as you said there's already digital currencies what could a new central bank digital currency uh, add value Could it improve transactions between the central bank and uh and individual um, commercial banks uh, could it improve their transactions amongst commercial banks what, what is the purpose at a wholesale level of a, of a central bank digital currency? Is, is there a value add there?
0: Look, that skepticism is 100% right because a lot of central banks are actually quite skeptical about a CBDC. Um, we've been talking about CBDCs for, for, for many years now um, and central bank after central bank will come out with a study, as I know that the Bank of England has recently done, Um, or certainly the House of Lords, I believe it was, has recently done and said, we don't see the case for it. In Australia, it's the same again. The Reserve Bank of Australia is investigating and doing some proof of concepts that I should um, say that I'm also a bit involved in, but um, they are largely skeptical about what the value add is. I'll, I'll give you the strongest case for a CBDC, certainly a wholesale CBDC. What we're doing now in the economy, in the financial system, is we are starting to tokenize significant financial assets. So we're taking financial assets like fixed income products, like bonds or mortgages or so forth, and we're tokenizing them. We're turning them into these cryptographic tokens that can be traded on um, public or private blockchains. And there are large um, private sector blockchains like JP Morgan has a blockchain, JP Morgan has a stable coin um, on that blockchain. What companies like J.P. Morgan or, or these private sector providers would like to do, they would like to be able to use the CBDC to settle large transactions. In many cases, regulation requires them to use central bank money to settle large financial transactions. So the best case um, I see for a wholesale CBDC is to do that. It's to provide a direct tokenized ledger on which- What would be like, an example of those, those large transactions? So, so it could be bonds. So you know, multi-million dollar bond trades between the clients of JP Morgan um, that they want to be able to settle using CBDC rather than their own native stable core. That's is an example. So that I can see that argument. Um, uh, I think it's got some challenges, but I can see the argument.
1: And and then so on the retail side, which I think is potentially more interesting and even more <coughs> more challenging in some ways, is this idea that rather than uh, us having an account at a retail bank as, as we all currently do, we might also have an account or separately have an account with the central bank, uh, and and that would be. Cutting out the intermediary, maybe lower the transaction costs. Would that be the case for it? What, what could we, what could I get out of a retail uh, central bank digital currency? Look,
0: in a country like Australia and the United Kingdom, probably not much. We've got fantastic payment system, um, and if we were to have a central bank retail digital currency, we would. Not be materially adding to the quality of the payment system, but we would also be nationalising the payment <laughs> system entirely. So it's got some pretty bad negatives. Literally, literally <laughs> there would no
1: longer be banks, they would just, there would no longer be banks as we know them, there would just be one central bank. We'd all be transaction. Yeah, with look, look, there yeah.
0: might be. But in, in, in countries like Australia, for, for, for decades now, there have always been people in politics who have said, wouldn't it be good if we could have direct, bank, uh, direct accounts with the central bank? Um, to challenge the power of the private banks and those sorts of things. Um, now this, a, a retail CBDC might allow that to happen, but it's also one of the reasons I'm very skeptical. Well,
1: well <laughs> indeed, I think- it's I, gonna I, occur. <laughs> I think uh, many people listening, watching, will have this immediate thought, hold on, we're gonna start banking with the state. What, what does that mean? Does that mean the state gonna track all of our transactions? Does it mean them being able to limit how well, we spend the, our money? So, so all those negative things, but also
0: one of the reasons the central bank doesn't want this Central banks don't want to provide to retail. They don't want to deal with customer service. They don't all this sorts of stuff. That, yeah. You, so um, yeah, privacy, liberty, all these things that are very dear to my heart as an old um, uh, free marketeer. But also, you know, the central banks don't don't love that idea. So I don't think a retail CBDC is really particularly on the cards. Certainly at this
1: stage. Um, I think it's just worth unpacking a little bit more some of the potential kind of I suppose dystopian implications of it so something that comes to mind for example might be the government if you get a payment from the government them telling you how they can spend your money uh, if you in future, the government, you know, we get back to the world of, of negative interest rates, perhaps, you know, they, they the money in our account will slowly go down over time in order to encourage us to spend money. Uh, what, what, what do you think could be some of the, I suppose, the implications on that land, on that side, as well as, I, guess, I suppose, the privacy implications of the government tracking or having direct access to track it?
0: Yeah, so um, it, it's a good question. I guess when I think about this, when when we think about the, we free marketeers, civil libertarians, think about the risk of a CBDC to financial freedom and financial privacy, I think we are understating the damage that has already been done to our financial liberties. Um, I don't really see that a CBDC, certainly with the exception of some very marginal things, would give the government much more power than it already has. Um, the government has near absolute power to surveil our bank accounts. Um, in Australia, I can certainly talk about um, it, precisely the scenario that you spelt out before. If you get a government payment, then um, uh, they called it the cashless welfare card. They would prevent you from using um, uh, your welfare on, uh, on non-approved things. Um, that seems to be on the way out, but that's that's been public policy for, for many years. Um, On the financial privacy perspective, I think we underestimate how much we've lost financial privacy over the last two decades. This is not an argument for CBDCs at all. I think it's an appeal that I'm making to the liberty movement to um, look more closely at the financial privacy that we've already lost um, and, and for us to focus much more on that. Um uh, yeah, I, 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 the, the, other, the other major aspect to that that I'll also raise is the question of cash. Cash is the most anonymous payment system that we have. Um, there are a lot of people arguing that cash should be replaced for, for privacy reasons. They're worried about too much privacy. Some people worry about too much privacy.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, usually what they're worried about, of course, is criminal. Oh, hey, good, I mean, yeah. But, but, but so there's some people who think world. we're all criminals. Um, <laughs> uh,
0: uh, but uh, as well as if we got rid of cash, then um, you know, may, we could have those negative interest rates that, you, that you're referring to as well. Um, again, these are all, it's sort of orthogonal to the CBDC question, because if we got rid of cash, we, the government, could act through our bank accounts, through um, uh, through the central bank itself. Already, um, so in a funny way, I think the the, uh, the the case for CBDC is not necessarily strong, but it's not. I, we're in a pretty bad place in financial <laughs> privacy right now.
1: Yeah, something I'm thinking about, which is. To to a large extent, people though seem to be willing to sacrifice some privacy for convenience when it comes to transactions. You know, we could day-to-day choose to hide what we're buying from the state uh, by using cash, as you've said, but I, I suspect like me, you mainly use uh, digital payments these days. Is there, is there something here perhaps, although we might talk in the abstract about privacy, people, in, at least in their financial transactions, don't at the very least don't seem to care if the bank has access to their um, transaction information and by extent the government could always get access, access to that as well? Yeah, it's a great
0: question. Um, so privacy is a complex um, liberty because it's a liberty that we choose to exercise and we have, the way I think about it is we have different each of us have a different threat matrix. We have a different, uh, I want to hide some things from some people but not everything from every person. I might want to hide something from colleagues or um, an employer that I'm willing to share with my family. On the other hand, I might want to not share stuff with my family that, um, uh I'm not sure I can think of something I don't want to share with my family, but I do want to share with my employer. <laughs> but be but careful, they might be watching <laughs> this. There'll be questions to be asked. Um uh, but you know, there there are certain things that um, you know, we 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 try to protect our family for, even if it's as simple as closing the door to the toilet, right? So so we make these different decisions about what we're willing to share based on what do we think the risks of um that, that, that knowledge or that information being shared are. Um, I think most people, you're right, most people don't care that you bought bananas from the shops and they don't care about sharing that information with the bank, um, but they might care about um, sharing that information with, or some information with employer. Do you want your employer to know, much how, uh, know how much alcohol you buy? almost certainly not. <laughs> do you, um, uh, maybe you don't want your family to know <laughs> you know, you buy. Um, uh, but we're making these different calculations. Um, I don't care that the bank knows, but I don't do care that my employer knows, and so on and so forth. Now, for most people, sharing information about what they spend with their bank is not a major thing. But for some people, it could be. Um, so for example, you might be in a situation that you want to get a new mortgage. And so you don't want to share the stupid stuff that you buy on your credit card um, uh, uh, with, with the bank. Um, and I think that, you know, we should we should have the technologies that allow us to do that.
1: Yeah, I've, I've quite a few times in the past put joke comments when I send people uh, re- pay someone back for dinner, at uh, which point I've got a message a few months down the line saying I needed to send a bank statement for the purpose <laughs> of getting a mortgage or, or getting a flat or something. Exactly, you can they've got some that, very yeah. suspicious <laughs> transaction names coming up there, so maybe, maybe yeah, you've got to be a little bit careful there at least. I mean, I think perhaps uh, an argument that might not necessarily be that persuasive to you, but is probably quite effective amongst policymakers, which is this sense, and I alluded to at the start, which is that the People's Bank of China has, has already gone ahead and created digital currency. and you know. There's, there's a global geostrategic question and race, you know, will China lead the world, the global economy? Are they going to use that uh, digital currency as part of the, the global reach of, of the Chinese government? And therefore, although the Federal Reserve might not instinctively want a digital currency, if you said they, they might not necessarily see any direct benefits, there, could there be a sense that if they don't do this, um, there, there's a risk of falling behind for, uh, China?
0: Yeah, and I think a big part of why China has a CBDC is precisely that geopolitical goal. Um, they would like not just Chinese citizens, but Chinese citizens in other countries, and in fact Chinese trading partners to be able to use um, a digital, um, uh, digital one. Now, um, to my mind, so a lot of policymakers have said to that, well, you know, if they're building one, then we've got to build one. Um, to my mind, that doesn't make any sense. First of all, in the context of um, uh, dollar diplomacy, um, uh, the United States already has the global reserve currency. The challenge is not to build better financial payments infrastructure; it's to shore up that the the dollar currency. And it's not payments infrastructure that is um, has has given it that um, high ground. Um, but to my mind, the correct response to a Chinese CBDC is for countries like the United States, like the United Kingdom, like um, Australia, to actually allow for a richly developed, innovative crypto economy, where we allow a thousand flowers to bloom, we allow an extraordinary amount of innovation in the crypto space to um, demonstrate and to build alternative financial infrastructure that is free and open and innovative and entrepreneurial and fundamentally liberty-enhancing. That's what I think is happening. I find it a bit rich though from the United States when they do make these claims, because in fact the United States is one of the most hostile countries to crypto innovation (laughs) at the moment, um, uh, which, which, which is insane. Most stablecoins, so crypto-backed representations of fiat currency, are dollar denominated, and the United States is trying to crack down on stablecoins. So they have the high ground already, and they're trying to regulate it out of existence. If you want to buy cryptocurrency from uh, in a public coin offering, um, if you're an American citizen, you're very unlikely to be able to do so because of regulatory reasons. The, the correct response for a hegemon like the United States would be to facilitate innovation in the private sector, not to try to do a, uh, a you know, its own government run money.
1: Yeah, this seems like an intriguing point here, which is you've, you've, got, uh, you've got real blockchain uh, cryptocurrencies that already exist. Um, what is meant to be the interaction between them and the central bank digital currencies? Uh, and and do you, does, does the government not want you to use those digital currencies? Or, or do they have to allow you to transfer between digital currencies? To
0: my mind, this is the main point. Um, CBDCs originally were a, um, uh, they came from the idea that, well, Bitcoin's been invented, um, digital currencies seem to be an exciting new thing. Why don't central banks have a fiat version of Bitcoin? Um, However, as we've discussed, there's a lot of central banks that are really unsure about why you would do it. To my mind, the only reason to have a central bank digital currency, the the strongest case for it is to allow, uh, is so that it can interoperate with other blockchains, other assets, other um, tokens, those JP Morgan tokens that I was talking about, or public blockchains like Ethereum or Bitcoin um, or Solana or Cosmos or or what have you. now, I think that that, that that's almost exciting. I, I like the idea that we might be able to take the British pound or the euro or the Australian dollar or the US dollar and bridge it across onto public chains. That's going to create all sorts of policy reasons. Because if I can bridge my Australian dollar onto a public chain, then I can do some weird stuff with that dollar. I can run it through um, uh, protocols that may not be doing anti-money laundering. know your customer <laughs> checks. I might be running it through um, privacy-preserving technologies. Again, what will the what will governments what will policymakers think when I suddenly take my Australian dollar CBDC and run it through uh, a privacy-preserving tech like Tornado Cash, the recently um, uh, the recently sanctioned Tornado Cash? Um, that uh, that's going to be a huge public policy problem. Which is why I'm uh, I, I I think we're understating the difficulties that we're going to have in building CBDCs. Because once you've got this, once you can bridge assets onto other chains, then sort of all hell breaks loose.
1: Just stepping back for a moment. um, Obviously, you've been looking at blockchain of cryptocurrencies for for a few years now. Um, And there's been, I suppose, a a great promise about their their potential to really revolutionize uh, um, financial transactions as as well as deal with other kind of ledger-related problems. Do you think there's been a bit of disappointment that you know they haven't really stabilized as currencies? We see crazy ups and downs in blockchain. A lot of people during COVID put a lot of money into it and then it crashed. And you we know, go we go through these cycles with with Bitcoin specifically, but even more generally. What is the what do you see as kind of the value add and the case still for these? Um, these technologies? So, um, uh,
0: look, a lot of people have, have gotten involved in it. A lot of people have made some money and a lot of people have lost some money. Um, uh, right now, the crypto markets are trading basically like a risky tech stock. And when I think about what's happened, certainly in the last um, six months or so, um, you know, globally, the Federal Reserve has decided to um, raise interest rates um, and if the Federal Reserve wants to fight the market, you know it's it's going to affect risk risk assets like crypto. Um, but as we've been doing this, it's not about the price per se; it's about the infrastructure that we've been building. We've been building the ability for anyone on the planet to permissionlessly, without asking for permission at all, to um, borrow money, send money, to create new financial institutions, to represent assets entirely digitally, to share them. Immediately, globally, instantaneously, um, the infrastructure that we've built is extraordinary, and which is why large firms are looking at some of this infrastructure with a degree of jealousy, thinking like, "How can we get involved? How can we take our our traditional assets? How can we put them through these amazing um, infrastructure that's been built?" Um, so, uh, uh, you, I think we're going through a difficult time in the markets right now. Um, I, I've got a almost entirely macroeconomic explanation for that, but it is hiding the fact that we've just had this incredible explosion of innovation um, uh, around the infrastructure of the financial system. I, I, I'm, I'm convinced that we're the precipice of a financial revolution that um, uh, in fact we may already be in that revolution itself and not, not know that it happens. This is one of the funny things about digital change Um, we don't know that it's occurring, or we don't notice it as occurring as it did in the same way that we didn't notice that the world was changing because of the invention of social media, but my God, it's different now. I think that's the case for the financial system too.
1: And how how do you think it is changing the financial system? What does that mean, I guess, suppose, for for liberty and and freedom uh, as as something that uh, we're quite interested in maximizing here? So we're worried central bank digital currency is not great for liberty and freedom, but are the underlying technologies I'm um, going to deliver us something that we do, we don't otherwise have.
0: Absolutely, it's access. It's access. Right now, we have a financial regulatory system or financial system that's wildly overregulated, that prevents a lot of people getting access to really basic products and services. So there are the unbanked people in the developed world, uh, sorry, developing world. But there's also people who are unable to access. You know, borrowing and lending systems because they might not have high-quality credit. They might not have—they um, uh, not, might not have high-quality technology infrastructure that allows them to access the traditional financial sector. Um, there are people that are, are not allowed to invest in early-stage technologies that can now do so in the crypto markets. Um, there's a, uh, I, I think we underestimate how wildly overregulated our financial sector is. Um, I've, I've mentioned anti money laundering and know your customer rules, which is one of them. One of the real bugbears of mine, certainly this is the case in Australia, that you know, we have these rules around if, you, if you're not a sophisticated investor, a sophisticated investor with quotes, then you can't invest in early stage technologies. Um, now, what's their definition of the word sophisticated? you're sophisticated if you're rich. If you've got a quarter of a million dollars, that means you're wealthy enough to be sophisticated. Now, I think that's inherently patronizing, um, but it's also inherently anti-liberty, the idea that we're preventing some people from making transactions that they would like to make. Um, uh, crypto, uh, uh, there's a saying in crypto, crypto solves this, and, um, and it does.
1: Is it really possible, though, for crypto to solve these problems? I mean, you, you mentioned Tornado Cash, which I, which I think is a fascinating case study here of um, something that's very much focused on privacy. This is a technology that's meant to basically anonymize blockchain uh, transactions. Um, being put on the sanctions list by the U.S. government—that's quite an extreme response. Basically, means if I. Really quickly, be sent for jail for using a, a bit of a computer program, which is beyond previous com- comprehension. Do you think we're going to see more of those kind of backlashes from policymakers trying, to, I suppose, limit some of the what they see as the extremes uh, in the in in the case of tomato cash? in their view for completely legitimate reasons related to financial crime and therefore this technology is really going to struggle and um, there's a lot of people in in the crypto sector who talk about oh we just want our p- to be properly regulated we accept the regulation you know, they, they've become the market incumbents uh you in, in classic kind of rent seeking terms they put up barriers to their competitors they may be in crypto but they're still businesses acting rationally do you think you really is really possible to get to that end point are we just going to get stuck With, you know, new sector, government comes in and puts in place a bunch of new regulations.
0: Yeah, look, so um, uh, this is the debate that we're in at the moment. I think it's going to be very messy for a long time. Um, uh, It's very hard for individual governments, even coalitions of governments, to win this because unlike almost any other sector, it's, it's, it's global first. So those services, those products are going to continue to be available as long as Anyone on the planet is able to deploy a smart contract onto a blockchain. Um, uh, Now that doesn't mean that we're not going to go through a really challenging time um, as governments realize the threat to their power that this technology presents. Um, And Tornado Cash is a great example of that. I'm not convinced that Tornado tornado Cash sanctions will hold up um, uh, as it works its way through the legal system as it's already started to do. Um, but ultimately, you know, I, I think it's a, it should be a big focus of the liberty movement to fight these fights and to ensure, uh, you know, I, I think crypto will win, but we want to ensure crypto wins in a way that um, maximises access for as many people as possible and, and, and is directed in a way that's liberty enhancing.
1: Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining our podcast.
0: No, pleasure.